Nun, rien de rien. Nun, je ne regrette rien. Hi, Mum. This is now chapter eight. And I hope you enjoyed my little sing song. Ooh, sorry, bit of a mic issue here. Um, yeah, can't believe these are the last couple of days in Spain. I'm sure can't you, you can't either. Devastating. Devo. But um, sure, look, I'm sure you'll be back to, you know, nice weather and friendly and smiling faces who won't be jealous at all of the two months that you've just had in Spain. Um, but yeah, anyway, I digress. Chapter 8 Big Boy It was Easter Sunday in Chicago and my sister Amy and I were attending an afternoon dinner at the home of our friend John. The weather was nice and he'd set up a table in the backyard so that we might sit in the sun. Everyone had taken their places when I excused myself to visit the bathroom and there in the toilet was the absolute biggest turd I'd ever seen in my life. No toilet paper or anything, just this long, coiled specimen, as thick as a burrito. <laughs> did, you, did you hear that? Okay, hang on, Mum, I need to repeat this to Darren. When I excused myself to visit the bathroom, and there, in the toilet, was the absolute biggest turd I've ever seen in my life. No toilet paper or anything, just this long, coiled specimen, as thick as a burrito. <laughs> I flushed the toilet and the big turd trembled. It shifted position, but that was it. This thing wasn't going anywhere. I thought briefly of leaving it behind for someone else to take care of, but it was too late for that. Too late because before getting up from the table, I stupidly told everyone where I was going. I'll be back in a minute, I'd said. I'm just going to run to the bathroom. My whereabouts were public knowledge. I should have said I was going to make a phone call. I planned to urinate and maybe run a little water over my face, but, but now I had this to deal with. <laughs> the tank refilled and I made a silent promise. <laughs> Sorry. The tank refilled and I made a silent promise. The deal was that if this thing would go away, I'd repay the world by performing some unexpected act of kindness. I flushed the toilet a second time and the big turd spun a lazy circle. Go on, I whispered. Scoot, shoo. I turned away, ready to perform my good deed. When I looked back down, there it was, bobbing to the surface in a fresh pool of water. Just then, someone knocked on the door and I started to panic. Just a minute! At an early age, my mother sat me down and explained that everyone has bowel movements. Everyone, she said. Even the president and his wife. She'd mention our neighbours, the priest, and several of the actors we saw each week on television. I'd gotten the overall picture. But natural or not, there was no way I was going to take responsibility for this one. Just a minute. I seriously considered lifting this turd out of the toilet and tossing it out the window. It honestly crossed my mind, but John lived on the ground floor and a dozen people were seated at a picnic table 10 feet away. They'd see the window open. They'd see the window open and notice something dropping to the ground. 
and these were the people who would surely gather around and investigate. Then there I'd be with my unspeakably filthy hands trying to explain that it wasn't mine. <laughs> but why bother throwing it out of the window if it wasn't mine? No one would have believed me except the person who had left it in the first place and chances were pretty slim that the freak in question would suddenly step forward and own up to it. I was trapped. I'll be out in a second. I scrambled for a plunger and used the handle to break the turd into manageable pieces, all the while thinking that it wasn't fair, that this was technically not my job. Another flush and it still didn't go down. Come on, pal, let's move it. While waiting for the tank to refill, I thought... Maybe I should wash my hair. It wasn't dirty, but I needed some excuse to cover the quick amount of time that I was spending in the bathroom. Quick, I thought, do something. By now, the other guests were probably thinking I was the type of person who uses dinner parties as an opportunity to defecate and catch up on my reading. Here I come. I'm just washing up. One more flush and it was all over. The thing was gone and out of my life. I opened the door to find my friend Janet, who said, well, it's about time. And I was left thinking that the person who'd abandoned the huge turd had no problem with it, so why did I? What's, why the big deal? Had it been left there to teach me a lesson? Had a lesson been learned? Did it have anything to do with Easter? I resolved to put it all behind me, and then I stepped outside to begin examining the suspects. Okay, and now we're actually on to the next chapter. That was a short one. Um, oh God, I actually don't even know how I made it through that chapter. I've literally got tears streaming down my face. That was one of the funniest things I've ever read. Okay, so this is actually chapter nine. The Great Leap Forward. When I first moved to New York, I shared a reasonably priced two-bedroom apartment, half a block from the Hudson River. I had no job at the time and was living off the cruel joke I referred to as my savings. In the evenings, lacking anything better to do, I used to head east and stare into the windows of the handsome single-family townhouses, wondering what went on in those well-appointed rooms. What would it be like to have not only your apartment, but an entire building in which you could do whatever you wanted? I'd watch a white-haired man slipping out of his back brace and ask myself what he'd done to deserve such a privileged life. Had I been able to swap places with him, I'd have done so immediately. I'd never devoted much time to envy while living in Chicago. But there it had been possible to rent a good size apartment and still have enough money left over for a movie or a decent cut of meat. To be broke in New York was to feel a constant needling sense of failure as you were regularly confronted by people who had not only more, but much, much more. My daily budget was a quickly spent $12 and every extravagance called for a corresponding sacrifice. If I bought a hot dog on the street, I'd have to make up that money by eating eggs for dinner or walking 50 blocks to the library rather than taking the subway. The newspaper was fished out of the trash cans section by section and I always was and I was always on the lookout for a good chicken back recipe. Across town over the East Village the graffiti was calling for the rich to be eaten, imprisoned or taxed out of existence. Though it sometimes seems seemed like a nice idea I hoped the revolution would not take place during my lifetime. I didn't want the rich to go away until I could at least briefly join their ranks. The money was tempting, I just didn't know how to get it. I was nearing the end of a brief seasonal job when I noticed that my favourite townhouse had been put up for sale. A federal gen, the papers would have called it. Four storeys tall, the building stood on a quiet, tree-lined block enclosing a private garden. As far as I was concerned, the house belonged to me. 
I'd spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time spying into the walnut-panelled second study floor and imagined myself dusting the bookcases. It would take a lot of work to keep that place clean, but I was willing to make the sacrifice. A few months after being put on the market, the building was sold and painted hot pink with tangerine trim. The combination of colours gave the house a raw, jittery feeling. Stare at the facade for more than a minute and the doors and windows appeared to tremble as if suffering the effects of a powerful amphetamine. Because I'd always noticed this house, I found it remarkable when, through the recommendation of a casual acquaintance, the new owner hired me to work three days a week as her personal assistant. Valencia was a striking, tightly wound Colombian woman with a closet full of short skirts and singular talent for appalling, appalling her neighbours. After painting the walnut-panelled library a screeching canary yellow, she strung a clothesline across a 19th-century wrought-iron balcony the former owner had brought up from New Orleans. Show me where there is a law who says I cannot dry my clothes in sunshine, she said, crumpling up one of several anonymous letters of complaint. Maybe these people should just mind their own business for one time in their life and leave me alone. My God. It was rumoured that Valencia was some sort of heiress and had paid for the million-dollar house in cash. Sorry, that was actually the alarm to remind me to do the podcast. Let me turn it off. Hang on. I'm back. Okay. Um... It was rumoured that Valencia was some sort of heiress and had paid for the million-dollar house in cash much the same way a normal person might buy a belt or an, or an electric skillet. Money seemed to embarrass her, and although she was obviously quite well off, she preferred to pretend otherwise. The house was furnished with broken tables and chairs she'd picked up off the street, and every service was haggled over. If a cab driver charged her four dollars, she'd wrangle him down to three. Should someone demand the previously agreed-upon price? He or she was accused of trying to fleece a poor immigrant woman with a small struggling business with a child to feed. Worn out by the bickering, a surprising number of people eventually caved in. Often these were cash-strapped independent merchants and labourers, and I was always surprised by the joy she took in saving a few dollars at their expense. Valencia's business was a small publishing company she ran from her garishly painted fourth-floor study. It was more a hobby than a moneymaker, but the work satisfied her dual interests in art and in a certain list-like style of writing. In her first year of operation she had produced two volumes of poetry written by men known mainly for their violent tempers. Once or twice a week an order would come in and it was my job to fill it. There were occasional errands to run or letters to Xerox but the most but for the most part all I did was sit at my desk and mentally redecorate the house. A go-getter might have dreamt up clever ways of promoting the two unpopular titles but I have no mind for business and considered staying awake to be enough of an accomplishment. Around the first of the month, when the bills came due for the phone, gas and electricity, Valencia would have me go through the books and make a list of everyone who owed her money. She'd notice, for example, that a bookstore in London had an overdue account of $17. $17! I want you to call them now and tell them to send it to me. I'd point that the long-distance call would cost more than the money she was owed, but she didn't seem to care, saying that it was the principal that bothered her. Call them now before they have their tea. I'd then pick up the phone and pretend to dial. There was no way I would get heavy-handed and demand that an English person send me money, even if he owned it to me personally. Holding up the receiver to my mouth, I'd look out across the garden and onto the orderly homes of Valencia's neighbours. 
uniformed maids entered the rooms carrying tea services on silver trays. Men and women sat on chairs with four legs and stared at their walls without the benefit of sunglasses. What worried me was the thought that I actually belonged in Valencia's house, that of all the homes in New York, my place was here with the barefoot Contessa. London's not answering, I'd say. I think today's a British national holiday. Well, then I think it would be good for you to call that store in Michigan's who owes the $12.50. In the late afternoon, we would often be visited by one or more of the failed beat poets who always, very coincidentally, seemed to find themselves in the neighbourhood. They were known for their famous friendships rather than the work that they had produced. But that was enough for Valencia, who collected these men much the same way that her neighbours collected Regency tea caddies or Staffordshire hounds. Occasionally these poets would show up drunk, carrying found objects on which they had scrawled cryptic messages. Look what I did, they'd say. Want to buy it? Such works decorated the house and I was often scolded for accidentally throwing away Robert's styrofoam cup or Douglas's very special paint stick. Valencia was incredibly generous to these deadbeats. She'd memorise their poetry and excuse their bad behaviour. She poured them drinks and forced them to eat, but she'd been as poor... But had she been as poor as she normally pretended to be, I doubt they would have wanted anything to do with her. In her presence, she was charming and attentive, but they seemed to need more than just her friendship. Watching her and their company, I could understand why wealthy people usually had other wealthy people for friends. It was one thing to be disliked, but I imagine it was really... It must be really smart to find yourself repeatedly taking advantage of. My career as a personal assistant hit rock bottom one summer morning when Valencia greeted me with a flyer she'd taken from the window of an exotic bird shop located on the corner. Beneath a, fu a fuzzy Xerox photo of what appeared to be a chicken was a description of a missing African grey parrot that had flown out of the store when a customer opened the door. It was noted that the bird answered to the name of Cheeky and that its $750 reward had been offered for its return. So there it is, Valencia said. We'll find this Cheeky bird, split the money and then we'll be rich. The chances of finding the parrot struck me as fairly slim. It had already enjoyed two days of freedom and even on foot it would have easily made Brooklyn long ago. I went to work, filling in a book order, annoyed that Valencia took such great pleasure in pretending to be poor. Finding the bird which would have been nice, sure, but it was silly to act as though she needed the money to survive. Somewhere along the way, she'd got the idea that broke people led richer lives than everybody else, and they were nobler or more intelligent. In an effort to keep me noble, she was paying me less than she paid her previous assistant. Half my paychecks bounced, and she refused to reimburse me for my penalty charges, claiming that it was my bank's fault, not hers. I was stuffing a book into an envelope when Valencia hissed, Psst. David, look, outside, I think I see the $750 bird. I looked through the open window, where standing on the branch of a ginkgo tree, a male pigeon was examining his misshapen foot. Call him into the house, Valencia whispered. Tell him you have some good bread for him to eat and he will come. I told her it was just a pigeon, but she denied it, holding up the smudgy Xerox as proof. Call him by the name of Cheeky, grab him with your hands and we'll split the money. I thought once more of my bounce paychecks and realised that the... the had this been the actual parrot, she would have found some way to renege on the deal and change this play from a compromised, from the promised 50-50. I could clearly see her saying that she'd been the first one to spot the bird and that she deserved more because it'd been captured on her property. In the past, I'd put up with her tantrums and said nothing when she yelled at me in front of the deadbeats, but this was asking way too much. Although I could humour her by, by courting the bird, I knew that I definitely could not call him cheeky. It was just too embarrassing. 
What are you waiting for? She asked. Hurry, before it's too late. I lowered my voice and I produced a series of gentle kissing noises. I promised food and comfort, but the pigeon had no interest in entering the house. He just stared past me as if not judging the broken furniture and brightly painted walls. And then he flew away. How could you let him fly like that? Valencia screamed. We could have made important money, but instead you were so stupid with the noises you preferred. Really? How could you? She threw herself on the bed and she kept parked in the corner and sulked for a while before picking up the chipped telephone and calling somewhere in her native land. I studied Spanish in high school but had no idea who she was calling or what they were talking about. Her tone of voice suggested that she was possibly begging someone for a heart or a kidney, something urgent. The pleading was followed by an extended period of screaming that ultimately gave way to more begging. Such calls were common and though she sometimes wept, she never mentioned the conversation after slamming down the receiver. Valencia had been on the phone for maybe 10 minutes when the Spanish stopped and she switched, switched to English. David, he's back. It's a $750 bird and this time he wants to come into the house. Get him, get him. It was another pigeon, this one with two healthy feet and a noticeably shorter attention span. He flew away and again I was screamed at. You're competent at nothing. I cannot believe this situation I'm having with you. What good is a person who cannot even catch a bird? The scene repeated itself through the course of the week and marked the beginning of the end for Valencia and I. She started calling early on my scheduled days, saying that she wouldn't be needing any help. I knew that she'd recently bought a computer and was paying a college student to teach her how to use it. The student was cheerful and efficient and enjoyed beat, pro beat poetry. If asked who she could have capably wrangled $17 from the English or caught a pigeon with her bare hands. The name Cheeky would have come easily to her, so it made sense to me, so it made sense to phase me out. I should have handed in my resignation, but as lousy and low-paying as the job was, I didn't want to have to look for another one. And so I stayed and waited to be fired. I was down to a day and a half a week when Valencia called a mover to cart a load of furniture to an apartment she'd rented for one of the deadbeats. The man came alone, not bringing any helpers, as he'd been told it was a one-person job. It's hard for one person to carry a sofa down three flights of stairs, so seeing as I had nothing better to do, I offered to help. The man's name was Patrick, and he spoke in a soft, hypnotic vo voice that made everything he said sound wise and comforting. I can see that you've really got your hands full with this one, he said, rolling his eyes towards Valencia's office. I've known broads like that all my life. She wants to be artsy and has settled on being cheap. I can tell I won't be getting a tip out of her. After we carried the furniture to the Deadbeats' new apartment, Patrick offered me a job and I took it. Terrific, he said. Get yourself a back brace and I'll see you in the morning. Because he was a card-carrying communist, Patrick hated being referred to as the boss. This is a collective, he'd say. Sure, I might happen to own the truck, but that doesn't make me any more valuable than the next guy. If I'm better than you, it's only because I'm Irish. I'd never cared for any of the self-proclaimed Marxists I'd known back in college, but Patrick was different. One look at his teeth and you could understand his crusade for universal health care. Both his glasses and his smile were held together with duct tape. Notably too was his willingness to engage in actual physical work. The communist side known in the past had always operated on the assumption that come the revolution they would be the ones lying around party headquarters with clipboards in their hands. They couldn't manage to wash a coffee mug, yet they'd be more willing to criticise the detergent manufacturer. Patrick's mugs were clean and neatly lined up on the drain board. He lived alone in a tiny rent-controlled apartment filled with soft snack foods, 
letters from imprisoned radicals and the sorts of newspapers that have no fashion section. He, his moving collective consisted of him, a dented bread truck and a group of full and part-time helpers hired according to availability and the size of any given job. Together they resemble the cast of a dopey situation comedy, something called Grin and Barrett or Hello Dolly. The part-time helpers included Lyle, a guitar-playing folk singer from Queens, and Ivan, a Russian immigrant on medication for what has been diagnosed a residual schizophrenia. I worked full-time most, um, most often with a convicted murderer named Richie, who at six feet four and close to 350 pounds, was a poster boy for both the moving industry and the failure of the criminal rehabilitation system. Convicted at the age of 15, he'd served 10 years in a combination of juvenile and adult penitentiaries on charges of arson and second degree murder. The victim had been his sister's boyfriend, whom Richie had burned to death because in his words, I don't know, the guy was an asshole, what more do you want? He thought of what he'd said and then retracted it, saying, rather, I found him to be untrustworthy, how's that? In an effort to impress his latest parole officer, Richie was trying to improve his vocabulary. I can't promise I'll never kill anyone again, he once said, strapping a refrigerator to his back. It's unrealistic to live your life within such strict parameters. It would be a stretch to say that I enjoy coaxing mattresses up five flights of stairs, but it was nice to work as part of a team. The money was nothing compared to what other people earned answering phones or sipping, slipping suppositories into the rectums of senior citizens, but it was more than I had earned working for Valencia. The cash was bounce-proof and almost everyone included a tip. After having spent a year and a half cooped up in a little office, it felt good to get out and move around. Reggio Park, Bayside, Harlem, Coney Island. The job introduced me to the various neighbourhoods of Manhattan and the surrounding boroughs. It gave me a chance to look into people's lives, to meet my fellow New Yorkers and carry, a, carry their things. Because Patrick didn't believe in having himself bonded, we rarely moved anything of great value. No museum quality paintings or extraordinary pieces of furniture. Most of our customers were moving into places that they couldn't quite afford. Their new higher rents meant that, they have to, that they'd have to cut back on their spending or work longer hours or try to wean themselves off their costly psychiatrists. They were, they were anxious about their future and quick to complain should a part of their past get scratched or broken. The transitory state fucks with their heads, Richie explained during my first week at work. Me, I just tried to ignore their stressed-outedness and concentrate on the gratuity. Moving heavy objects allowed me to feel manly in the eyes of other men. With the women, it didn't matter, but I enjoyed subtly intimidating the guys with bad backs who thought they were helping out by telling us how to pack the truck. The thinking was that because we were the furniture movers, we obviously weren't too bright. In addition to being strong and stupid, we were also thought of as dangerous. It might have been an old story to Patrick and the others, but I got a kick out of being mistaken as volatile. All I had to do was throw down my dolly with a little extra force and a bossy customer would say, let's just all calm down and try to work this out. I began to change in subtle ways and quickly lost patience with people who moved, who owned too many books. What had once seemed as an honourable inclination now struck me as a heavy and inconvenient affectation. The conversation wasn't as sparkling, but I found that I much preferred the stuffed animal collectors. Boxes of records made me think that LPs should be outlawed or at least limited to five per person. And I soon came to despise the type who packs even her empty shampoo bottles, figuring she'll sort things out and throw them away once she's settled in the new place. When faced with an apartment full of boxes, I'd pretend to be an ant, assigned to transport 
sandwich crumbs back to my colony. There was no use in trying to estimate how many trips it might involve, as that sort of thinking only wore me out in advance. Instead, I just took it box by box until it was my turn to guard the truck. Once we reached the new building, the process would be repeated, hopefully with an elevator. Standing in the new apartments, the air noxious with the smell of paint, the customers would determine the order of their new lives. The sofa bed goes here. No. Over there, maybe. What do you think? The schizophrenic was the best at giving decorating advice, though Richie wasn't bad either. After a job was finished, we'd stand on the street drinking beer or foul-tasting Gatorade. The tip would be discussed, as would the disadvantages of living in this particular neighbourhood. It was generally agreed that a coffin-sized studio on Avenue D was preferable to living in one of the boroughs. Moving one brook Moving from one Brooklyn or Staten Island neighbourhood to another was fine, and unless you had children to think about, even the homeless saw it as a step forward to leave Manhattan. Customers quitting the island for Astoria or Cobble Hill would claim to welcome the change of pace, saying it would be nice to finally have a garden to live a little closer to the airport. They'd put a good face on it, but one could always detect an underlying sense of defeat. The apartments might be bigger and cheaper in other places, but one could never count on their old circle of friends making the long tri trip to attend a birthday party. Even Washington Heights was considered a stretch. People referred to it as upstate New York, even though it was right there in Manhattan. Our bottles drained, Patrick would carry us, carry us back to what everyone... Patrick would carry us back to what everyone but Lyle agreed was the centre of the universe. Moving people from one place to another made me feel as though I performed a valuable, performed a valuable service, recognised and appreciated by the city at large. In the grand scheme of things, I finally had a role to play. My place was not with Valencia, but here riding in a bread truck with my friends. My friend the communist, my friend the schizophrenic and my friend the murderer. The first of the month was always the busiest time, but there were more than enough minor jobs and unhappy marriages to pull us through. In other parts of the country, people tried to stay together for the sake of the children. In New York, they tried to work things out for the sake of the apartment. Leaving a spacious, reasonably priced one-bedroom in the middle of the month usually signified that someone had done something really bad. We'd empty a, a place of half its possessions and listen to the details as we drove the former tenant to a quickly rented storage space. The truck made a great deal of noise and although the injured party was always eager to talk, he had to significantly raise his voice to be heard. I liked being told these stories, but it was odd hearing such personal information shouted rather than whispered. Then she what? Richie or I would scream. Fucked her ex-boyfriend on this sofa I'd bought her for her anniversary. On the what? On the sofa I'm sitting on. She fucked her ex-boyfriend on the sofa. How many times, we'd ask. Huh? How many times? Just once that I know of, but isn't that enough? It depends. How much was your rent? When the citizens of New York went looking for a new apartment, they came to us. Some movers charged for the inside information, but with the exception of Richie, we gave it away for free. Strangers would often flag down the loaded van and ask where we were coming from. Do you know if it's already been rented? Does it have a tub or a shower? They'd ask the same thing as the emergency medical crews pulling up to the, the hospital morgue. What floor did the victim live on? Did the apartment get much light? I'd been raised with the impression that it took a certain amount of know-how to get by in New York, but the surprising number of our customers proved me wrong. Here were people who packed 200 pounds of dishes into a single box the size of a doghouse, or even worse, people who didn't pack at all. One evening we were 
We went to move to an we went to move an attractive young woman who found it charming to spell the name Kim with an with an H and a Y and two M's. The door opened to the sound of nerve-shattering club music broadcast from an enormous stereo system. Popcorn snapped away on the stovetop and everything appeared to be in its rightful place. I assumed that we had the wrong apartment and was ready to apologise when she said, Are you the movers? Great, come on in. The phone rang and she talked for a few moments before covering the mouthpiece to say, I couldn't find any boxes or anything, so just, you know. Just you know what? Richie asked. Just use our fucking magic powers or... Just, you know, go home. He and I were ready to leave. It irritated us that this girl couldn't even manage to pack. You don't just place a red-hot skillet on the floor of a moving truck. And besides, if she couldn't bother to round up a few dozen boxes, there was little chance she'd come through with much of a tip. Kim struck... To, so it's spelled K-H-Y-M-M. -M, struck me as the sort of person who always got... who had always gotten by on her looks. People had probably forgiven her for all kinds of things, but I doubted she'd get much sympathy out of Patrick. It was my understanding that the communists preferred beefy, corn-fed girls with thick ankles and strong backs, all the better for threshing wheat and lugging heavy sacks of rice. Well, Richie said. Patrick threw up his hands. Oh, what the hell? We're here, aren't we? The young woman had a small dog, a Pomeranian, that yapped non-stop during the three hours it took to empty the apartment. She herself did nothing to help, but rather talked on the phone, occasionally pausing to yell, that's very collectible, or be careful with the fish, I'm pretty sure the female is pregnant. While climbing the three flights of stairs for another armload of shampoo bottles, I entertained the cruel fantasies, which grew more pronounced once we'd packed up the truck and arrived at her new apartment on the fifth floor of yet another walk-up building. Just as I'd predicted, our tip consisted of a toothy smile and the ridiculous suggestion that we have a nice evening. Patrick gave us a little... Something extra for our troubles, but refused to join in on what Richie and I grumbled about, the girl's prize-winning idiocy. Oh, give her a break, she was a good kid. He could be very unpredictable that way. Sometimes we'd walk into an organised, well-packed apartment, and if the client was male and obviously very successful, Patrick would cancel the job, claiming that his axle had just broken or that the truck's transmission had given out. Sorry, friend, but I just can't do it. He'd give the guy a number of one of his competitors and then he would leave, delighted by the great inconvenience he'd caused. Guys like that are bad news, he'd say, packing up the truck. So how about it, boys? Are any of you up for a piping hot cup, hot cup of coffee? My treat. I was rarely appeased by the words piping hot. I didn't want a cup of coffee. I wanted to work. What was wrong with the guy, I'd ask. It was an elevator building, for God's sake. It was good money. Patrick would throw back his head and let out a hearty communist laugh. An extended bray that suggested I was young and could not tell the difference between good money and bad. We'll do a big job tomorrow, he'd say. Relax, brother. How much money do you need? Enough for a townhouse, I'd say. You don't want a townhouse. Yes, I do. Well, then you're definitely in the wrong business. He was right about that. Carrying up boxes down, up and downstairs wasn't going to earn me a million dollars. Still, the extra money in my pocket allowed me to walk down the street not caring that other people had more than I did. I'd go to a movie or I'd buy a dime bag of pot from Richie and not feel burdened by envy. I just had to understand that for Patrick, moving a certain kind of person was the equivalent of me calling a pigeon cheeky. It simply wasn't worth the money to him. Maybe he felt those men looking at his teeth and thinking, and thinking him a loser. In their great, tenacious drive to succeed, perhaps Patrick saw the futility of his own struggle. Detailed questions about his decisions only led to the quoting of Marx and Lenin. 
so I soon learned to stop asking. The best of times were snappy autumn afternoons when we'd finished moving a two-bedroom customer from Manhattan to some faraway neighbourhood in Brooklyn or Queens. The side doors would be open as we crowded in the front seat, Patrick listening to a tape translation of Chairman Bao, Mao boasting about the great leap forward. Traffic would be heavy on the bridge due to an accident and because we were paid for travel time, we'd hoped that the pileup involved at least one piece of heavy machinery. When the tape became too monotonous, I'd ask Richie about his days in the reformatory and pleasantly drowse as he spoke of 12-year-old car thieves and boys who had killed their brothers over an ice cream sandwich. Patrick would get involved saying that their violent crime was a natural consequence of the capitalist system and then eventually the New York skyline would appear on the horizon and we'd all stop talking. If you happen to live there, it's always refreshing to view Manhattan from afar. Up close, the city constitutes an oppressive series of staircases, but from a distance inspires fantasies of wealth and power so profound that even our communists are temporarily, temporarily rendered speechless. God, my, it's the funny thing, my throat has just got so dry. That was some solid reading, though. I think that was uh, about 36 minutes long, but hopefully you'll enjoy. And yeah, love you loads.